Amen. You all sound great. Would you remain standing as we go to the two texts from which my assignment comes as we begin a new series following Jesus during these times. Second Timothy chapter number three is the first one. And then over in Matthew chapter 16, second Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such turn away. Matthew chapter number 16 verse 24 says, then said Jesus to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In this latter scripture, we find Christ's clarion call to all those who claim to be disciples to follow him. Said another way, if you're a disciple of Christ, he expects us to agree with him to side with him, to imitate him, to submit to him, to hold the same views as him, to obey him, to adhere to morality as defined by him, to treat people as he would treat people, to define things like he defines things, to live like him, to be a reflection of him, etc., etc., etc. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to follow him. It means his standards, his truth, his grace, his way of life, his actions, his manner of living, his everything becomes our standard. And following Jesus like that is not as easy as it sounds, which is why he tells us that in order to follow him, we got to pick up our cross. And in the very next verse, he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it or said another way. Following Jesus requires a new way of life. And this kind of discipleship, this kind of being a Christ follower is especially challenging during the times in which we currently live. And so that's what I want to talk to you about. Following Jesus during these times. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, right now we pray that you would minister by your grace, by your power, and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit to every heart. Would you help us to be conformed into the image of Christ who is our standard bearer? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. When I say that it is especially difficult and becoming increasingly more difficult to follow Jesus during these times. What do I mean? Well, here are just a few examples of some things that have come across my path in just the last couple of weeks. One Washington State school board director is set to teach a sexual pleasure class to nine-year-olds at a sex shop called Wink Wink. A Richland school district, District 2, proudly references a video from Amaze, a cartoon, which discusses how gender identity is not the same as sex assigned to us at birth. Burger King this last month released their Pride Whopper. Drag queens are reading children's books at libraries and certain schools to pre-K and kindergarten children. A Methodist university displayed a student's drag queen's photo of himself as gay Jesus. The Peanuts cartoon that we all grew up in, which is, which is now celebrating families with two moms and two dads. The Satanic Temple is now offering after-school clubs to children starting in the first grade, stating that we hope by our presence that people can see that good people have different perspectives on the same mythology but mean no harm. One person asked a lady in our church who was wearing our women's ministry T-shirt which said she on it, is that your pronoun? A hospital nurse referred to a young girl of five years old as she, and was corrected by the parent by saying, you mean they. To quote the prophet Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, we aren't in Kansas anymore. 
I give these scriptures not to point the proverbial finger at the precious people who God loves or who struggle, or for that matter, don't struggle with these issues, but rather to point out that identity confusion and sexual fornication that is prevalent in our society has always been the play of the enemy to mar God's creation. The scripture actually tells us, as it was in the time of Noah, so shall it be with the coming of Christ. Well, not to teach on Noah, but during the times of Noah, the hallmark sin was sexual fornication and confusion. As it was in the time of Noah, so shall it be at the end of the age. We are living in a confusing time right now. It is becoming more and more difficult to follow Jesus as I define following Jesus. We are living in a time where right is called wrong and wrong is now called right. And anyone who doesn't see it that way is hateful, unkind, or intolerant. Society has adopted a view that kindness and love can only be expressed by another person who condones or expresses agreement or approval with whatever it is that somebody else is doing. When in fact that is the exact opposite of what love is because love corrects out of care and concern. How many parents do we have here? Have you ever corrected your child? Would you say when you were correcting your child, you hated your child? How many would say, I hated my child when I was correcting my child? I hated my child when I told my child that something was wrong. No, why? Because you know as a parent that love corrects. Matter of fact, listen to what the scripture says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 6. The Lord corrects the people he loves and disciplines those he calls his own. Be patient when you are corrected. This is how God treats His children, don't all parents correct their children? God corrects all his children, and if he doesn't correct you, then you really don't belong to him. And so the truth of the matter is, when we don't care enough to be a light, when we don't care enough to be truth bearers, we're not loving people, we're not being kind to people, we're being wicked and hateful and unkind to people. And when we come to the scripture about following Jesus, Specifically, the prophetic picture that is painted in 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I want to give you what this scripture is talking about because it really is an exact description of the times in which we are living right now. Uh, my dear friend who I was just with also in Louisiana, Rick Renner, who's always been a great mentor of me, he wrote a fantastic book. Highly recommend that you read it. I- I'm stealing or borrowing a lot of the material from that book. I told Rick I was going to do that and I was going to give him credit. He said, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, don't worry, Rick, I'm going to make it better than in your book anyway. <laughs> and-, and so in, in second... Timothy chapter number three, here's how he offers, and by the way, here's again the beginning of the verse, but know this, that in last days perilous times shall come. Rick is a Greek expert, and so he translates verse number one of 2 Timothy three like this. You emphatically and categorically need to know with unquestionable certainty that in the very end of days, days when time has sailed to its last port and no more time remains for the journey, that last season will stand in the midst of uncontrollable, unpredictable, hurtful, treacherous, menacing times that will be emotionally difficult for people to bear. Does not, not sound like the time that we are living in. Translation, it will become harder and harder to follow Jesus in the end of times. So what will society look like at the end of times? Well, number one, the first sign is the supremacy of self. Notice again, Second Timothy chapter three, verse number two, for men will be lovers of themselves. Now this is an interesting phrase, lovers of themselves. It is the Greek word philados. Phileo and autos, philados. Phileo is a deep love or fondness for another person. It's where we get the phrase brotherly love from. So we are supposed to have a deep fondness and love for one another. We are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is the love that the good Samaritan showed the man on the side of the street. It's a love that helps others, respects others, binds up the wounds of others, cares about others, sacrifices for others. It is the one of the loves that Jesus showed us when he walked the earth because Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. 
Matter of fact, in the story of the Good Samaritan, it is a picture of Jesus. Like the Good Samaritan, he came down from where he was. He, like the Good Samaritan, traded places with us. The Good Samaritan got off of his horse and put the wounded man on the horse. Jesus traded places with us. He came down so we could go up. He became sin so we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He not only came down, but he did it at great expense to himself. The Samaritan in the Good Samaritan story used his bandages his ointments, his wages, all that was his to help the person at great expense to himself. Jesus at great expense to himself. He used his own blood to redeem us, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the lamb have we been redeemed. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He came to earth to save us. And when he left, he left us with help. The good Samaritan, when he left, he left the guy with some money. He says, here's some money, and when I come back, if I owe you anything, I'll give it to you. When Jesus went up, he didn't leave us as offerings. He left us with the help of the Holy Spirit, didn't he? He said, I won't leave you helpless. I won't leave you comfortless. I will send you the Holy Spirit who is just like having me. He will live in you. He will abide in you. He will be your comforter. He will be your guide. Jesus is that good Samaritan. And just like the good Samaritan came back to make everything right, Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, all the craziness, all the confusion over right and over wrong is going to be set straight and there is going to be a a thousand year millennial reign, the reign of the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who showed us what it means to love other people, to have a love that is directed toward someone else. Truth be told, Jesus showed us more than phileo love. He showed us agape love, but that's a a subject for another day. But the phrase lovers of themselves is phileo and autos. Autos is the Greek word which means oneself. And so the combination of these words is a spiritual oxymoron. Y'all know what an oxymoron is. It's right. It's two words that mean the complete opposite. You put them together and they mean something like jumbo shrimp. That's funny, right? Shrimp is small. Jumbo is big. Jumbo shrimp. It means something. It means just a large shrimp, right? Not a little shrimp like this, but a big shrimp. Pretty ugly, right? Pretty is pretty. Ugly is ugly. You put it together. That means the person's really ugly. Pretty ugly, right? Instant classic, right? That's instant. It's instantaneous. Classic is old. You put it together. It means something that came out recently is already a classic, right? Exact estimate. Some of you contractors know what I'm talking about, right? You drop an estimate off to somebody, right? And it runs over what the estimate said. They're like, that's not the price you told me. It says estimate, right? Exact estimate. Or civil war. War is not civil. But when you put it together, you have civil war. Random order. What's that about? Only choice. Well, if I have a choice, why is it my only choice? Then it's really not a choice, right? Only choice. Virtual reality. Right? That's an oxymoron. Working vacation. Watch this oxymoron. I love this one. Sinning saint. Uh Uh-oh. Nobody laughing no more. Everybody like, whoa, yeah. Pastor, you're getting too deep. Well, when we come to this word, it, it's, it's philados, right? Phileo and autos. Literally, the Holy Spirit says that a sign of the last days will be people will be in love with themselves. Self-absorbed, self-focused, self-consumed. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that the end time society will have a misdirected love that puts self at the center of everything above God, family, and friends. A love that is consumed with, watch this, my rights, my feelings, my truth, my identity, my choice, my opinion, my happiness, my comfort, my quality of life, my, 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 my. The Holy Spirit said, this is a defining characteristic of the end time society. And it's grown more and more in our world right now. Now we're about ready to tackle a, a, a golden calf, an elephant in the room. Let me just take one of those mys in our society right now that is prevalent. It's the statement, my body, my choice. My, 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 my. 
right? It's become the center of the abortion debate. And I believe that the body of Christ should never respond meanly to anything, right? Because that's the problem with the body of Christ. We get mean, right? And I'm going to talk about how to, how to present truth to people. And we always have to rem- remember that behind any action is a person that God loves, died for, cares about, and wants to redeem in every single way. But as the body of Christ, we also need to be familiar with truth. Because if we are not familiar with truth, we get swept up in the culture. So I want to give you four perspectives, four perspectives about abortion for a minute under this banner of my body, my choice. Number one, the scriptural view. What does the Bible have to say about where life begins? Psalm 139, verse number 13. Now, you all realize that I am a preacher. I'm a pastor, right? So my job is to always tell you what the Bible has to say. I cannot convince you to believe the Bible, but and, but that's not my job. My job is to show you what the Bible has to say, and then you have a choice, right? Your choice is either to choose the life way of the Bible or the death way of the world, right? And so listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 139, verse 13. You made all my delicate inner parts of my body, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Notice I'm a me in my mother's womb. Right? Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. What else does the Bible have to say? about when life begins. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart. Now, some people who have really tried to make the Bible not support life in the womb have said, well, that's only talking about Jeremiah. It's not talking about the whole, it's only Jeremiah. Well, listen to what the apostle Paul says about his life. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's life, Jeremiah's life, your life, all life, planned from the womb and before the womb. That is one of the great gifts of realizing that we are not just the results of biology, but we are creations of Almighty God, meaning that we are not accidents, we are not the result of random chance or an uncaused explosion or just biological outputs. We are creations of Almighty God. Therefore, every single life is valuable. Every single life has a purpose. Every single life has a meaning because our value is not just from who we are but whose we are. We're not slapped together. We are carefully crafted by our creator in our mother's womb in accordance with his pre-planned design. Even before we enter the womb, God has already a plan for our life. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2.10, listen to it. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What else does the scripture say on the subject? Luke chapter number one regarding John the Baptist. It says this in verse number 15. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. This is clearly someone God has a plan for. And by the way, let me say this is not my subject, but notice abstinence from alcohol was a sign of being set apart to God. I know it's an awkward silence. Because can I be honest with you? Christians are too loose in this area. We, we get something that is permissible and we take it to the extreme and we become too loose in these areas under the gospel of grace. Can I just tell you something? 
What is being called the gospel of grace right now is dangerous. Let me tell you it again. What is being called the gospel of grace right now is dangerous. We are saved by grace through faith. We know that it is but the grace of God. But the gospel of grace is not a gospel that says if you are a Christian, you can do anything you want and don't worry about it because God's got you covered anyway. That is what is being presented to the world right now and it is why the world thinks that the church can look exactly like outside of the church. It is not the way it is supposed to be. We are supposed to be separate and holy. Come out from among them and be ye separate. One of the signs of the end time society is unthankful and unholy. We need to realize that God has given us a purpose that he has created before time. He was set apart. He must never touch wine or alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. Now look what it says in Luke chapter 1 verse 41 about this. It says, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Mary, the mother of Jesus, walked into greet Elizabeth, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the babe, the baby, the, 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 the baby, the, the, the baby, the, 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 the baby in my womb leaped for joy. My dear friend Frank Shelton in his book, Carrying Greatness, he said, in every courthouse across America each day before a case is tried, regardless if one is a plaintiff or a defendant, an attorney wearing a $1,000 suit or a member of the jury or a janitor, you'll always hear two words before the trial starts. All rise! That's not for Aaron Judge, by the way. All rise! Out of respect, everyone, and I mean everyone, stands up for the one wearing the robe. He goes on to say, I submit to you that the reason why John jumped and stood up when Mary entered the room was because John knew who had entered the room. You see, in Mary's womb was not just the judge of a courtroom, but the judge of heaven and earth who wears a robe of righteousness. Come on, somebody. That's what happens when Jesus enters the room. All rise. When Jesus enters the room, the saints come to a and demons leap. When God enters the room, everything changes. When God enters the room, sickness and disease have to leave. Poverty and lack have to leave. Unholiness and unrighteousness have to leave. When God enters the room, everything changes. Everything changes. Notice the baby leaped within her womb. How about Paul, Jeremiah, John, all of our lives, pre-planned and appointed and laid out. Matter of fact, Acts covers all of us. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says, And he made from one blood every nation of all men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined there, everybody's, pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Here's what this means. Accidents may happen here on earth in terms of lives, but not in God's eyes. Nobody is an accident in God's eyes. The scripture teaches us that what is conceived in any womb is a life that matters to God and should matter to us. Second point of view, the scientific point of view. Of course, we sometimes believe in science these days and other times we don't, right? But let me give you the scientific point of view. From zero to four weeks, in the first few weeks, a primitive face will take form with large dark circles for eyes The mouth, lower jaw, and throat are developing. Blood cells are taking shape. The circulation begins. The tiny heart tube begins to beat 65 times a minute by the end of the fourth week. By the end of the first month, the baby is about a quarter of an inch long, smaller than a grain of rice. Let me just ask you something. Go ahead and try, man-made, to take a grain of rice and put a heartbeat in it. If that is not evidence that we are the creations of Almighty God, the miracle that takes place in the womb of a woman, 
How about from five weeks to eight weeks? Facial features continue to develop. Each ear begins a little fold of skin on the side of the head. Tiny buds that eventually grow into arms and legs are forming. Fingers, toes, and eyes are also forming. The neural tube, which is the brain, spinal cord, and other neural tissue of the central nervous system is well formed by now. The digestive tract and sensory organisms begin to develop. Uh, Two, bone starts to replace cartilage. The head is large in proportion to the rest of the body, just like some of you right now. About six weeks in a heartbeat, sorry, a heartbeat can usually be detected, and by the end of the second month, the baby is about one inch long and weighs about one-thirtieth of an ounce, nine to twelve weeks. The arms, hands, fingers, feet, and toes are fully formed. At this stage, the baby is starting to explore a bit by bit by doing things like opening and closing its fists and mouths. Fingernails and toenails are beginning to become developed uh, and the external ears are formed. The beginnings of teeth are forming under the gums. The reproductive organs, organs also develop, but gender is still difficult to distinguish on an ultrasound. By the end of the third month, the baby is fully formed. All organs and limbs, extremities are present and will continue to develop in order to become functional. The circulatory and urinary systems are also working and the liver produces bile. At the end of the third month, the baby is about four inches long and weighs about one ounce. That's the first trimester. Let me just give you a little bit of the second trimester. The baby's heartbeat is now audible through an instrument called the Doppler. The fingers and toes are well-defined. Eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, nails, and hair are formed. Teeth and bones become denser. The baby can even suck his or her thumb, yawn, stretch, and make faces. The nervous system is starting to function. The reproductive organs and genitalia are now fully developed, and your doctor can see on an ultrasound if the baby will be male or female. How does the doctor judge that, by the way? By genitalia. There's been a big question these days. What is a female? What is a female? Matter of fact, they went on, there was a movie done about it called What is a Female? And this person went outside the United States and asked people in Africa, what is a female? They cracked up. (laughs) Then they told me, they said, well, in America, here's what a female is. (laughs) You're joking, right? No, because... The way you define a male or a female is by the genitalia. Come on, somebody. This is not hard. This is biology. Scientists are now being asked to question biologists, and they won't answer the question. We need to realize the science view supports that there's a life, a baby in the tomb. What is the social view? The social view says the baby is not a baby, it's a fetus cannot live on its own until a certain point of viability. And so since it is not a life, the person carrying the fetus has the right to abort the fetus. Now I want to pause and say this again. And I truly mean this with all my heart. People who have gone through abortions or even contemplating abortions, they're not evil people. They're not criminals. They're not all of those kind of things. There are circumstances that can make anybody feel like something that is wrong is the right decision to make. Has anybody in here ever lied? How many of y'all believing that lying is wrong? Right? But why did you lie? You lied because there was a little bit of pressure from some point on you, right? And you felt by lying it would just be more convenient for you. And so, so you lied and you told the truth. Can I tell you that the pressures that surround people... When it comes to unwanted pregnancies or sometimes even wanted pregnancies are, are, are vast. And sometimes it can push people to make decisions. And we have to realize our anger should never be aimed at people. Our anger should always be aimed at systems. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Anybody who's ever going through anything should always experience support, loving, compassion, and discipleship from the body of Christ. That's what they should experience. However, this popular view, albeit a conflicting view with the science and the scripture, nevertheless is a view. Of course, its merits 
stand only on the argument that the baby is not a life but a fetus because no one would conclude that taking the life of a baby is okay. So in order for this popular social view to have any merit, we have to redefine what we call the baby in the mother's womb. Interesting to me is two thoughts. This seems to be the play of the enemy whenever it comes to right and wrong, that we have to redefine terms. Because morality is based on our understanding of what something is or isn't. Therefore, to make something right that is considered wrong, or something wrong that is considered right, we must redefine it. So, for example, right now in our society, there is a move to redefine pedophilia. And people who struggle with pedophilia, they are now moving to call them minor attracted people or MAPs. By the way, this is being spearheaded by one of the leading universities in our world, Old Dominion University, who has a woman who is a transgender who wrote a book in order to destigmatize pedophilia. This is what also has transpired in our society when it comes to marriage. And so in order for us to make a marriage right between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, what we had to do is redefine marriage. Biblical marriage, which was, by the way, originally given for the churches to define, biblical marriage is one man, one woman, in the confines of covenant, committing their life together forever. Marriage is now simply two people who love each other and want to spend the rest of their life together. And the reason why we have to redefine it is because our morality is based on our understanding of the terms. This is now what is going on with what is a woman, what is a man. In order for us to make a wrong right or a right wrong, we must redefine the terms, right? And so what we see happening is really the enemy taking a page out of the book of God. You say, what do you mean, pastor? Well, how many of you know what God does when God wants to change your destiny? When God wants your destiny to go in a specific direction, what God does is he changes your name. And so when God spoke to Abram, what did he do? Because he was meant to have a destiny to be the father of many nations. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. What did God do when he wanted to change Jacob's destiny from heel catcher to father of all of Israel? He changed his name from Jacob to Israel. What did he want to do when he wanted to change the apostle Paul's destiny from a murderer to the greatest propitiator of the gospel the world has ever seen? He changed his name from Saul to the apostle Paul. What does he do when you and I get saved? Come on, somebody. He gives us a new name. We become Christians or Christ-like ones, and that becomes our destiny to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so what does the enemy do? The enemy wants to mar the destiny of mankind. And so what does the enemy do? He changes the terms. He gets involved in the name game. And the scripture warns us against this strategy of the enemy. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Why the woe? Why the will? Not because God wants to smite people. Not because it is the desire of God to smite every person that is disobeying the word of God. And we ought to thank God for that. Amen. Aren't you glad that God, because I'll tell you what, if God just smited every person that was disobeying the word of God, church be empty next week. Nobody would be here. You wouldn't even have a preacher next week. So, so the objective of God, right, is it's not to smite everybody. It's not to punish everybody. It's not to pour out, pour out his fury upon anybody. And we know that's not the objective of God because we know from Scripture that God poured out his fury and his judgment on Jesus Christ. So he didn't have to pour it out on us. Isaiah 53, verse number 11, he shall see the labor or the travail of Jesus' soul and be satisfied, satiated. He'll look at what Jesus endured for the sin of mankind and God will say, that's enough punishment. So God is not punishing us. God doesn't want to punish us. God is not counting up the world's sins and wanting to use them against the world, but he wants to redeem the world from their sins. So, so, so why the woe? Because there is a way, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, 
but the end thereof is death. The reason for the woe, the reason for the warning is because God understands that when we do things that are apart from what he defines and tells us is right and wrong, it doesn't go well for us and it ultimately can lead to eternal separation from him from all of eternity if we are not in Christ. And so God is cautioning us because he loves us. What is the second thing that really struck me about this this social definition of abortion. Was it always the definition of abortion? And where did abortion, abortion come from? Abortion was first brought to the forefront by a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenics scientist. What's that, Pastor? Well, it's basically someone who believes in ridding the human race of all characteristics, both biological and socioeconomical, that they feel hamper the human race. So Sanger believed that it was necessary to reduce the birth rate amongst the diseased, the sickly, the poverty-stricken, and the antisocial classes, elements unable to provide for themselves and the burden of which we were all forced to carry as a society. She was very much in the mold of Adolf Hitler. And she was a regular speaker for the KKK. So, she took aim at the black community. She planted her first Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Brownsville, New York, under the guise of access to health care. She even convinced leaders in the black community that this was good for the black community and started a project called the Negro Project. It is no secret that black women have a disproportionate amount of abortions in relation to the population. White people have more abortions, by the way. But proportionally to the size of the population, black people, black women, have a disproportionate amount of abortions. And in fact, since Roe v. Wade, many big cities have held the black population to no growth relative to the population. So, if I was a racist... who wanted to rid the world of black people, I would use abortion as my choice of extinguishing that particular race. And in fact, it has done its job in most major cities in the world. I won't bore you of all of the sordid details, but let me say this. Later, eugenicists were unwilling to allow the racial divide in America to heal. And so it got governmental support to remove obstacles to abortion under the guise of access to health care. One such supporter was, and, and you know me, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I'm Bible. So they got a supporter from the Republican Party, who was the president at the time. His name was Richard Nixon. And he supported the move for abortion by removing all of the barriers under the guise of access to health care, and I quote, he said, because we want to get rid of all these black bastards. This is the history of where abortion came from. This is the reason why abortion came into being and was legalized. And the fact that the government was pulled into this sinful, racist practice is strong evidence, by the way, that there is systemic racism in the United States. It doesn't mean that the United States is bad, okay? For facts of the matter are, most countries in the world have been built on slavery, Most countries. Many countries had slaves prior to the United States having slaves. It's awful. It's abominable. But let's face facts when it comes to systemic racism. The fact that the government supported abortion and still supports abortion with the cause of abortion being as it originally was is strong proof that this exists. Full disclosure, some will refute that Margaret Sanger had this as her agenda, but I believe the historical record is overwhelming and the evidence is strong. Before I leave the social view of abortion, let me say this. We as the body of Christ have a responsibility to help women who feel helpless, abandoned, financially destitute, and overwhelmed with the real life issues and that often lead women to feeling like they have to have an abortion. We need to be for life from the womb to the tomb. 
Matter of fact, the scripture tells us that we have this responsibility. Proverbs 31 verse number 8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In Bible times, women were especially in this category because oftentimes the way society was built in those days, if a woman did not have a man to take care of them and they were pregnant, they were destitute. And that's why if you go back and you read some of the stories in the Bible of stuff that seemed like it was crazy and wrong, God stood on the side of women in many cases because they were destitute. We have a responsibility in our society to this day to help any person who is at a point where they feel like they're going to make a bad decision because of the pressures that are in life. Lastly, the last view of it is the satanic view. What is the satanic view on abortion in life? Well, here's the statement the satanic temple released the day in recent time when they overturned Roe v. Wade. The satanic temple is the leading beacon of life in the battle for the for abortion access. With Roe v. Wade overturned, a religious exemption will be the only available challenge to many restrictions to access, which is false, by the way. You know that, right? Because, because they didn't overturn it and make abortion illegal. They just pushed it back to the states, and every state gets to decide. So, right, you don't really need a religious exemption in order to get an abortion. So that's a lie. But we're not surprised by that because anything that comes out of the devil's mouth is what? A lie. The satanic temple stands alone because we are the only entity that can assert a religious liberty claim that terminating a pregnancy, listen to this, is the central part of a religious ritual that encourages self-empowerment and affirms bodily autonomy. Let me say it again just so you hear it. We are the only religious organization that can affirm a religious exemption because one of our rituals requires the termination of a pregnancy as a central part that encourages self-empowerment and affirms bodily autonomy. Self-empowerment and affirms bodily autonomy. Self-empowerment and affirms bodily autonomy. What is that? My body, my choice. Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. See, despite the difficult decisions that can often surround an unwanted pregnancy and the unfortunate plight that many find themselves in, and despite the compassion and care that we are called to give all people, especially those contemplating an unwanted pregnancy and those who have terminated an unwanted pregnancy, this is the rallying cry. This rallying cry is a sign of the end of days. At the end of time, people will become lovers of themselves. And when the self is the foundation of any society, it is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. Contrary to this current day infatuation with self, listen to what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Contrary to what society is teaching us, that we ought to be lovers of self, Jesus said in our opening text, Matthew 16, verse 24, to his disciples, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Contrary to the supremacy of self, Jesus said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Contrary to the age of society and the claim of society of supremacy to self, Jesus said, at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. What does that mean? It means let's not fall victim to the spirit of the age, me, 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 me. Let's follow Jesus and love people like Jesus did with grace and truth. Grace and truth. Watch this, watch this. With grace when they sin. With grace when they sin. Grace binds up their wounds. Grace pours in the oil and the wine. Grace goes out of their way to restore and to help. That's grace. Grace shares the forgiving power of the cross 
and of the blood. Grace lets them know that no matter what they've done, God can make them new. Grace and truth. Truth that teaches, not beats, not name calls, not attempts to label somebody's life by a mistake or a poor decision or even an unhealthy lifestyle that they've chose to live in. But truth that teaches what is right and what is wrong so that they can live a life that honors God. Always remember the world needs both. It needs grace and it needs truth. Jesus loved and protected the woman caught in adultery. His foremost action when she was thrown at his feet for the sin that she was committing was not to tell her she was wrong. It was to love her to a place of wholeness. And so what did he do? He actually attacked those who were attacking the woman. He caused them all to go away. And after he picked the woman up and dusted her off, he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they're all gone. Listen to what he said. Neither do I accuse you. Listen, can I just stop calling people murderers? Stop calling people demons. Stop doing that. You know, there's a big move in the body of Christ for those people who are Republican to call Democrats Democrats. Stop. Stop. Call the issues godly or ungodly, but not the people. What did he say? He said, woman, where are thine accusers? Neither do I confuse you, confu- uh, accuse you. But then he picked her up and he said, but go and sin no more. One of the things that I'm convinced of is I'm convinced there is a conscience on the inside of every person that God has put there, by the way. It's one of the evidences that we are not biological experiments, but rather creations of Almighty God because we have a conscience on the inside. And I'm convinced that, that most people, even though there's outward bluster, know something on the inside. And when they experience grace and truth, something goes off on the inside of them. And can I tell you, sometimes it's difficult to express both in a public forum. That's why sometimes it's better not to have certain conversations in certain places. That's not to to go away from the truth. But remember when the Pharisees try to drag Jesus into conversations? Right? They'd ask him certain questions. Have you ever noticed that sometimes Jesus didn't even answer the question? Why? Because Jesus understood that there was an audience of people who he wanted to reach. And so Jesus was always very careful of how he put things, never to compromise truth, but never to alienate people who needed that truth. Jesus was a master at the mixture of grace and truth. And so he protected that woman. Listen, truth without grace is mean. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. And this is the danger of the gospel of grace. It is grace without truth and it becomes meaningless, unimpactful in people's lives. But grace and truth is transformative. Grace and truth is godliness. Grace and truth is what causes people to live for God, to know that there's hope in Jesus Christ, to give their lives to Jesus, to open their hearts to Jesus. And what we need to be prayerful of as a church is that God would give us the wisdom during these last days to be able to navigate between grace and truth so that we can speak to the heart of the precious people that God loves. No matter what sin they're caught up in, No matter what they're professing to believe in, God loves people. Can you say amen? Would you stand to your feet? When the Lord asked me to preach on this, I said, Lord, you know me, I like to preach a little bit. I said, this is going to be more of a teaching. I'm not going to sweat real much. And he said, no, I need you to to share this. Thank God we can come to church and we can come to the word of God and get direction as it pertains to what is happening in our society. Because if we don't get direction, we get misdirection in our lives. Would you join me in prayer? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you're here today and maybe you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you're here today 
and you're struggling with a sin, I want you to know, first of all, God loves you. But second of all, he wants to give you the power to overcome that. Some people say, well, pastor, I was, I was born this way. I don't have time to teach on that, but let me just say this. That's why God said we need to be born again. Hallelujah. Because when you're born again, guess what happens? You get a new nature. You get a new desire. You get a new something on the inside that gives you the power to live for God. So if you're here today, you're struggling with a sin. You're apart from God. You need forgiveness. You want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You want God to forgive you. You want to know that when you die, heaven will be your eternal home. He wants to save you today with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today, you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit on your heart. Saying to me, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus right where you are. We won't embarrass you, I promise you. Put your hand up so I can pray for you. Pastor, would you pray for me? Pastor, would you pray for me? Pastor, would you pray for me? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Pastor, today, I want to give my life to Jesus. Amen. That's awesome. Pastor, today, I want to give my life to Jesus. I need forgiveness. Amen. On the Behind those cameras over there, I know God is speaking to some of you. Maybe you just feel like, I need to give my life to Jesus. Maybe you intentionally tuned in. Maybe you did a drive-by and God caught your attention because it was this really good-looking guy preaching the gospel. He said, I got to see what he has to say. God is calling you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, right there in your home, just reach your hands up to heaven. You can put your hands down. I want to pray with you right now. Would you say this after me? Everybody praying out loud together. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. And I ask you to forgive me. As I put my faith in Jesus Christ, with your help, I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. If you raised your hand, an usher is going to find you. They're going to give you a little booklet that describes what it means to give your life to Jesus. Before you leave, take a minute, fill out the little card in the booklet. Give it back to one of the ushers on the way out. If you're online and you gave your life to Jesus, reach out and write Jesus in the chat or touch the hand in front of you and we'll reach out to you. God bless y'all. Listen, invite some folks back to church for the rest of the series. I believe God is going to really talk to people's heart and set people free. We love you. We'll see you again next week.